Welcome to Fresh Growth. We've completed season one and are starting interviews for season two. Thanks for listening to our first season. In between, we are sharing some special podcasts. These podcasts were created as a senior project in Montana State University's Sustainable Food and Bioenergy Systems class. The students interviewed producers on topics such as farm diversity, food sovereignty, and soil health, among others. We hope you enjoy and learn from their work. Welcome to A Sovereign Plate. This podcast is brought to you by the Montana State University Sustainable Food and Bioenergy Systems Program and the Western SARE Program. That's Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. I'm Serena Whitcomb. And I'm Catherine Going. And we, your hosts, are Sustainable Food and Bioenergy System undergraduates at Montana State University. Additionally, we both work in the realm of food access and security. Today we're going to be discussing food sovereignty. Um, food sovereignty is the right of peoples to healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods and their right to define their own food and agricultural systems. We have with us today Jill Mackin. Jill, would you go ahead and tell us a little bit about you and your work? Valley of the Flowers in and I just say hello. Um, my name is Jill Falcon Mackin. That's my English name. My Anishinaabe name is Flaming Horsewoman, and I come from the Bear Clan. I am Anishinaabe Ojibwa from um, the Turtle Mountain Band of, of Ojibwa. I work as um, as a, I am a doctoral researcher at Montana State University. And my area of specialty is indigenous food systems and land practices. And I work as part of the Native Land Project, which is an initiative of the Native American Studies Department here at MSU. And we work in indigenous-led tribal partnerships. The one I'm working with is the Anskapi Bikani, the Blackfeet, here in Montana. Awesome, Jill. We're glad that you're here with us. So we just read the textbook definition of food sovereignty. But how would you define food sovereignty, and how does it connect to the Ojibwa worldview? Okay. Uh, food sovereignty to us means taking control of our food system. Um, it is a right that's guaranteed under the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples, as well as other rights statements Indigenous Peoples have made. And it goes along with uh, our right to educate our students in their own language and culture. In the same way, we have a right to feed ourselves in a way that is appropriate to our own traditional culture. And that's really important. My research is on the bison culture food system, um, which is a food system that was sustainable for 13,000 plus years. It was eliminated in approximately 20 years of a massive eradication of the buffalo. But for those 13,000 plus years, our people co-evolved in that food system with foods that were local and harvested in sustainable ways. So. For us, it's about being able to have access to foods which we co-evolved with, and those are the foods that we are genetically disposed to thrive. 
um, when we eat them. Um, it's also about taking control of our health and the health of the land. And food sovereignty is about taking control of knowledge transference to our young people, that they would learn our life ways and food ways. Um, what would you say led you to this career and kind of inspired you to work in the realm of food sovereignty? So I was working in the field of indigenous education and looking at the climate change uh, crisis that we're facing. Uh, it came to me, um, especially in, in uh, hearing one of my mentors, Wynonna Laduke, who is also Ojibwa. She's from the White Earth Band of Ojibwa. And she's an activist in food systems, um, quite profoundly so. And her work really made me help, made me see the crisis that's impending, and that is that we are hooked on a fossil fuel-based food delivery system. And without making radical changes to that, we're going to face incredible disparities in the future, uh, more than the disparities that we already live with as Indigenous people. Indigenous knowledge systems because we come from a different worldview, because we come from a circular worldview in which humans are not at the center of the circle and all the relatives are around that circle, but humans are just one in the middle of the circle. And we see all things as connected. Because of that, our indigenous knowledge system has a lot to share in this climate crisis. It gives us an opportunity to look at sustainable ways of living like the buffalo culture uh, food system, which was sustainable, the longest sustained food system on this continent ever. So uh, it's that connectivity of um, an honorable harvest where we take only what we need and we make sure that everyone has enough um, and those practices, those land practices of giving back to Mother Earth and taking in careful ways, um, those kinds of indigenous knowledge practices are really important as we go forward. What are some specific examples of how you encourage food sovereignty in Native communities? Um, there's multiple levels that we're working with food sovereignty. Of course, we've got issues with just changing our palates. Uh, when I'm at ceremonies, I often notice that it's those indigenous foods that we put out that are some of the last that people gobble up, uh, especially the children, because we're in a practice of learning to like those foods again. And sugar and flour are some of the most addictive substances there is. When we refine anything down to that pure of, of powder, it becomes incredibly addictive. And so we're trying to break a cycle of addiction. So introducing those foods when um, kids are young, uh, having their elders, their grandparents, their mothers uh, teach them, also teaching young mothers. That's one way that we can bring back those foods by teaching how to prepare them and building a palate for them. But we have multiple issues that hit at many levels. Um, for example, how do we get those foods into the market? How do we get those foods into the home? Having access to places where we can hunt and harvest our traditional foods is, is an issue that we're dealing with, and we're negotiating for places that we can go on public and private lands and, and hunt and harvest in addition to tribal lands. But 
we also have issues of, of uh, processing those foods. So for example, at Blackfeet, they are incredible agricultural producers with um, bison and beef being produced in very good quality on the reservation. Uh, but one of the things they don't have is a multi-species processing plant where they can uh, take care of processing that meat and then make sure that it gets into the system right there at home first, such as the senior center and the schools and the casino, uh, the commodity delivery program, um, and the grocery stores. And so they're working on getting, we're working with them here at MSU, getting a multi-species processing plant established in Blackfeet country. Uh, there's also many policy issues that we have to overcome, like access to trust land so that producers can have access to grazing where they're running out of grazing. Um, and so we're, we're working at many levels from the ground up to, to build um, the possibility of taking back the food system, taking it back from a hundred-year legacy of commodity foods and replacement foods that have been really not healthy for the people and not healthy for the land. Could you maybe discuss further how policy and economics have kind of made it harder to grow food sovereignty in these areas and maybe touch on some ways that you have in your work tried to improve these policies? Mm -hmm. So one of the policies that has been incredibly detrimental to, say, Blackfeet producers, but on a lot of reservations, was the policy of allotment that allowed for off-reservation uh, non-native um, individuals to come in and allot to, to receive a plot of land on the reservation and where native peoples received an allotment of land. So what happened is you ended up with a checkerboard effect where you do not have contiguous parcels. And um, you also received... Uh, um, a whole bunch of regulations on the Indian parcels. So those, those native parcels of land, those allotments, are um, tied up in a terrible snarl of policy that does not allow for producers to have control over their own land. Often it's fractionated amongst many generations of people in ownership, and so you have to have the cooperation of tens if not hundreds of people in order to take control of a piece of land and be able to do what you want with it to produce food on it. Um, so one of the things we've been doing in looking at that snarl of policy issues um, is to come up with a landowner's roadmap so that landowners can see the, po the legal political process that they have to go through in order to take control of their land. And I think this addresses a really common misperception um, of people that live off the reservation or have not spent much time on a reservation, because often it looks like Native people have a great deal of land, but in actuality, it's checkerboarded and it's also controlled by uh, a trust policy in which Native people do not have deeds to their own land. Instead, they have um, the, the, the federal government, the BIA, controls that land and decides what happens to it. So that's one way that we're trying to take control is to look at uh, the jurisdictional issues and the policy issues around trust land. 
So one last question. Mm. How can people support or get involved in this food sovereignty movement? One of the things that we've, we recognize um, in working together up at Blackfeet is that there's a lot of opportunity for on-reservation and off-reservation producers and policymakers, food uh, people involved in the food business to collaborate with one another, to cooperate with one another. Um, we're all, there's so many of us that are in the business of trying to produce healthy food in a local and sustainable way here in Montana. And if we can bring ourselves together in order to do that, um, often uh, there are opportunities to get to know Blackfeet producers and it, Rural producers and reservation rural producers have an opportunity to collaborate around building infrastructure and policy that supports locally produced healthy food. Um, and that may be by forming cooperatives, that might be by just being very aware of the policy issues that affect reservation and off-reservation producers, getting to know one another. Uh, we have done a series of, of meetings up at Blackfeet that are always open to the public. Um, the Agriculture Resource Management Plan up at Blackfeet holds regular public meetings, and that's a great opportunity for off-reservation producers to come in and get to know reservation producers and see how they can collaborate. Um, a multi-species processing plant, for example, would serve both on-reservation on and off-reservation producers. Um, so we see those opportunities to collaborate at Blackfeet, but they are across the board. There are, there are seven reservations in Montana, 12 tribes, and everyone has food sovereignty uh, projects going on, including food pantries um, ish, and all kinds of programs that are addressing food security on reservations. And just getting to know folks and finding out what's going on, there's many ways to plug in, but I think the first way is to just build those relationships of understanding. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Any last thoughts? One of the things I always say when we're, when we're looking at the legacies that we're dealing with with colonization and people being placed on reservations and their food systems being broken by them not being able to hunt and harvest in traditional and sustainable ways, is that there is some latent emotion around the issue of colonization in our country. It was a terribly violent era, and it's ongoing. Native people are trying to produce food while constantly having to protect themselves from claims on their water, from claims on oil on their reservations, and that zaps a lot of their strength and economic energy. Um, and so whose fault is this that, that we have this structure where people are struggling to put food on their table or struggling to have the cultural foods, the healthy foods that will help close the health disparities between natives and non-natives. I don't think that colonization in the historical sense is the fault of anyone that's around right now. But I do think that the burden of colonization is on everyone and that the answers come through building relationships and understanding person to person. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much. This is it's always amazing to hear you speak. Um, I do 
before we go, would you tell us a little bit about the website that you're working on and how that kind of is getting um, people more connected in the movement of food sovereignty? Absolutely. Um, recently, the partnership between the Amskapi Bikani, the Blackfeet, um, and the Montana State University Native Land Project recently won a million-dollar grant from the Foundation for Food Agriculture Research in Washington, D.C. And with that money, we are funded to do research that will help translate this beautiful indigenous-led partnership that we've had around food sovereignty and holistic land management up at Blackfeet. And so uh, we are building out a website that will build a network of food sovereignty practitioners, both at a regional level and onward over the next five years to an international level. And that website is designed to do a lot of things. It's designed to share knowledge of what's going on in all different levels of food sovereignty, food security work on reservations and amongst tribes and in rural communities. And it's also aimed at uh, providing really good research resources. So if you're writing for a food sovereignty grant, you might find some of the great data that you need to support your funding call. Um, it's also a place for knowledge transfer amongst people so that we can um, come to understand uh, more deeply the legacies of our own food systems and it's a place where we can find out about the policies that affect uh, food production, including tribal food code and uh, um, uh, the, the, the farm bill and things that um, you know, either impede or promote what we're doing in food sovereignty initiatives. And so I think that website will be a, an incredible resource for folks across the board, and that will be linked to um, as it emerges here in the next few months, will be linked to the MSU Native Land Project website and the Blackfeet Agriculture Resource Management Plan website. Thank you, Jill, for those powerful words. Stay tuned for the release of a new website linked to Montana State University's Native Land Project that will provide more resources, practices, and policy information regarding food sovereignty. Thank you again to our guest, Jill Mackin, for joining us today. Thank you also to the Montana State University Sustainable Food and Bioenergy Systems Program and Western SARE. Western SARE is a program supported by the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Lastly, a big thank you to Lennon Lott and Zach Horn, our technical team, for making this podcast a success. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Jill today and learned something new. I'm Serena Whitcomb. And I'm Catherine Going. And until next time.